Thanks for listening to Boston University School of Medicine's Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, Scope of Pain podcast series. I'm Jessica Alpert, and this is episode three. If at any point you want more information on receiving credit for this course, visit our website, scopeofpain.org. There are also resources that accompany this series. All of it can be found at scopeofpain.org. This episode will take a closer look at opioid safety and risk. Joining us now is Dr. Alexander Wally, director of the Graken Addiction Medicine Fellowship and an associate professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Wally, thanks so much for being here. Jessica, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. How do you begin to talk about opioid safety and risk? Well, opioids are medications, and all medications have a risk of allergy, but they're very rare with opioids. So I don't worry about allergies too much. I think about immunosuppression, which is rare, but in animal models, immunosuppression has been demonstrated. And in humans, increased risk of pneumococcal disease that is either invasive or as pneumonia. There are organ toxicities, specifically the suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And then opioids increase the risk of fracture, bone fracture. Adverse effects, and important to really warn the patient about uh, when you're prescribing, includes nausea, sedation, constipation, urinary retention, sweating, pruritus, and then the one I am most concerned about, which is respiratory depression. So those seem pretty common. How do you begin to manage those adverse effects? It boils down to either treating the symptoms with other medications or lowering the doses of opioids or changing to another opioid. So with nausea and vomiting, that one actually resolves oftentimes on its own in a couple days. You can use medications, anti-nausea medications, and then if the nausea and vomiting persists, you want to switch opioids. Constipation, stool softeners, osmotic stimulants, you want to avoid bulking agents. There are these peripheral acting mu opioid antagonists, which I haven't used because they're not yet really that accessible to my patients because of insurance reasons. Um, and then, you know, you can switch opioids. With pruritus and urinary retention, we usually switch opioids. You can use antihistamines for pruritus. Again, the one I worry the most about is respiratory depression and sedation. And when either of those things happen, you need to immediately decrease the dose. And what about drug interactions? What should we be thinking about? Okay, so with drug-drug interactions, I think about CNS depressants first. Uh, most importantly, benzodiazepines, because they're most common prescribed medication that's a CNS depressant. But I also think about other sedatives, tricyclic antidepressants. And these can potentiate the effects of opioids, particularly sedation and respiratory depression. Alcohol is really important because it's so common, and patients often don't recognize the danger. It can result in a dose dumping, particularly uh, for patients who are on the extended release formulations because it can compromise that formulation. And it can increase drug levels even without dose dumping. There are diuretics, which opioids can reduce the efficacy by inducing the release of antidiuretic hormone. With methadone, a specific opioid, we need to think about QTC prolongation. And so for patients with existing cardiac conditions or on other 
QTC prolonging medications, you need to monitor them on methadone. There are many concomitant drugs that act as inhibitors or inducers of the various cytochrome P450 enzymes, and many of the opioids are metabolized through the liver and the P450 enzymes are involved. It's a lot to keep track of. And honestly, what I like to do is use an online resource like Daily Med in order to keep track of those drug-drug interactions. And that website is dailymed.nlm.nih.gov. Okay, let's take a step back and look at the bigger picture. What can you tell us about rates of problematic opioid use in chronic pain? There is risk of opioid misuse and opioid use disorder or addiction with chronic opioid therapy. The misuse rates are 21 to 29 percent of people treated with chronic opioid therapy in a systematic review of 38 studies, most of which were in pain clinics, but they were also done in primary care populations and other populations. Addiction rates are low, but still relatively common at 8 to 12 percent of people who are started on chronic opioid therapy. And how do you define misuse? Well, misuse is use contrary to the prescribed use. It's regardless of the presence or absence of harm or adverse effects. And then there's collateral opioid risk. Talk about that. Yeah. So opioids are not just a risk to the people who are prescribed, but also others, including young children who may take them and overdose. There's adolescents or others in the home who might experiment, which could lead to overdose or addiction. And so how do you advise patients on how to keep the medication safe? Well, you just need to lock them up. Everybody should have a place in their home where they can keep their medication safe, where only they have access to them. They also need to not keep them around when they no longer need them or when they're no longer prescribed by safely disposing of them. And then if you have opioids in the home, it's a really good idea to have yourself educated about the overdose risk, as well as other people in the home that might have access, and then equip the home and yourself with naloxone or Narcan, which is the antidote to an opioid overdose. Let's move on to high-dose opioids. The CDC recommends avoiding high-dose opioids when possible, but what's the definition of high-dose? Well, the CDC has recognized that greater than or equal to 90 morphine milliequivalents per day as high dose. I think it's important to understand that the risks actually increase as you go from low to high opioids, and they had to pick a threshold somewhere, and so that's where they picked it. Tell me about some of those risks associated with high dose. There's tolerance to the analgesic or the pain-relieving properties. There's the risk of hyperalgesia. There's reduced function rather than improved function, overdose, and as I mentioned, immunosuppression. So if a patient comes to you already on a high dose of opioids, what course of action do you recommend? Well, even if they don't have any other risks, I consider them high risk if they're on a higher dose. And that means I'm going to increase their monitoring and the support around taking that medication. Okay, so would you also lower the dose below the CDC threshold? That depends. The CDC guidelines recommend that for patients already on, greater than or equal to 90 morphine milliequivalents per day, that we explain the overdose risk, which I'm going to do with all my patients, and that we offer to assist the patient to taper their opioids to a safer dose 
or a lower dose if the patient agrees. And so I think shared decision-making is important in this case because when you taper the patient without their buy-in, there is a risk of abrupt discontinuation, which we think could potentially be harmful to patients. And so since the initial release of the CDC guidelines, they actually have issued a clarification that tapering of the dose really should be done in collaboration with the patient, balancing risks and benefits, and avoiding abrupt discontinuation. So beyond the risks of high-dose opioids, are there other risk factors for overdose and addiction? Yes. So there's medication-related factors other than dose, which include the length of time that you're on the medication. So the longer that you're on chronic opioid therapy, the greater the risk of overdose and developing a substance use disorder. There's being on extended release or long-acting opioid formulations, which can increase the risk of overdose, especially in the first two weeks of starting the extended release or long-acting opioid. And then there's the combination of opioids and benzodiazepines, which benzodiazepines in this case is really a risk multiplier for the risk of overdose. And in fact, it's recognized by the CDC in one of their recommendations, which is to avoid prescribing opioid pain medications and benzodiazepines concurrently whenever possible. And what are some of the patient-related risk factors? There are multiple patient-related factors that are common in people with chronic pain and treated with chronic opioid therapy. They include, first and foremost, having a substance use disorder, for example, alcohol, tobacco, or other substances, mental health disorder, including the mood disorders and anxiety disorders. Substance use disorder is a genetic condition, at least in part. And so family history of substance use disorder, age, adolescents are at risk, uh, or young adults. Interestingly, older age is also a risk because not necessarily for addiction, but for overdose because older people have a higher risk of overdose given the similar exposure. There's other conditions like sleep disorder, breathing, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And then there's some historical factors that are important to be aware of, which include involvement with the criminal justice system, um, history of sexual trauma. And the single most important risk factor for overdose is actually a prior overdose. So I ask all of my patients who are on chronic opioid therapy about their, their overdose experience, overdose history. And coming up, we're going to learn how to assess for those risks in a busy practice. Dr. Alex Wally, thanks so much for being here. Jessica, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Let's turn to Dr. Daniel Alford. He is Scope of Pain's course director and a general internist who specializes in primary care and addiction medicine. Dr. Alford, welcome back. Thanks. So we heard from Dr. Wally about the risk factors, but let's focus on the patient-related ones. It seems like mental illness and, and prior substance use are areas of concern. What are your thoughts? Psychiatric comorbidities are incredibly common in patients with chronic pain, and it doesn't matter whether you look at depression or anxiety disorders or personality disorders or PTSD or substance use disorders. And not only are they common, but they make the pain worse, and the pain makes these disorders worse. So in a busy practice, how do you identify these? So luckily, we have some really short, validated instruments. And so for depression, I would use the PHQ-2. And if the PHQ-2 is negative, you're done. But if the PHQ-2 is positive, 
then you continue with the additional PHQ-9. You ask the additional seven questions to get a full sense of their level of depression. For anxiety, I would use the GAD-2. GAD is for General Anxiety Disorder Screen, and it's usually a seven-question screener, but you could use two questions, which has been validated. If they're negative, you're done. If they're positive, you ask the additional five questions. There were also short screeners for screening for PTSD and suicidality. So what about substance use? So to screen for substance use, let's talk about alcohol and drugs. But first, alcohol. The first question is, do you sometimes drink beer, wine, or other alcoholic beverages? Because drinking is so normative in our society, most people will say, yes, I drink beer, wine, or other alcoholic beverages. In fact, if someone says no, I would say why not? Because maybe they're in recovery or maybe they have a family history that you didn't know about. But again, most people are going to say yes. And so the question to ask about unhealthy alcohol use is, how many times in the past year have you had five or more drinks in a day for men, four or more drinks in a day for women? Anything other than never is considered positive. For drugs, it's how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or prescription medication for non-medical reasons? Anything other than never is considered positive. It's important to note the way these questions are asked. I didn't say, do you use drugs? I said, how many times in the past year? The same thing with alcohol, how many times in the past year? So it's asking it in a very normative way so that even if someone underreports, again, anything other than never is considered positive. The good news is that the majority of patients that you screen using these single questions are going to say never, and therefore you're done screening for substance use. Okay, so in addition to mental health and substance use screening, what other tools can you use to assess opioid misuse risk? So they include doing urine drug testing, uh, checking your prescription drug monitoring program, checking old medical records if they're available to you, and certainly calling the previous provider if it's a new patient to you. And then there are validated screening tools to identify misuse risk in patients. And none of them are gold standard. They all have pros and cons. But they include the opioid risk tool, the ORT, the dyer, the soap, and things like that. Dr. Alford, let's jump back into our patient Kathy James's intake appointment with Dr. Johnson. We started sitting in on this appointment back in episode two. Remember, Kathy is a 40-year-old woman with painful diabetic neuropathy and post-traumatic hip pain on chronic opioids. She came in asking for an opioid prescription refill. Okay, let's go over those questions you just answered. We'll need to talk about your smoking, and you screened negative for unhealthy alcohol or other drug use, as well as negative for depression and anxiety, which is great. Also, before you came in, I checked the state database of prescriptions written and filled. This is something I do with all of my patients, um, and I was able to verify that you've been getting the same medications over the last year from Dr. Robertson. If it's okay with you, I'd like to try to get in touch with Dr. Robertson in order to coordinate your care. Um, again, if you agree, I'll need you to sign a release of information. Sure, I'm, I'm fine with you talking with him. Um, you may not be able to reach him, though. I think he may have already moved. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. Thank you. Now, while normally I would not prescribe an opioid medication to a new patient on the first visit, I am going to give you a prescription for enough pills to get you through the next two weeks. That will give me enough time to review your medical records, hopefully connect with Dr. Robertson, and to come up with a longer-term treatment plan. Does that mean you're not going to keep giving me the pain meds? Not necessarily. 
my goal is truly to improve things for you if possible. Okay. So as I'm sure you've been hearing about, there's a lot of concern about the risks of opioid pain medications and the overdose epidemic. We require all of our patients on opioids to agree to urine drug testing so that we can confirm that you're taking your medication safely. My medical assistant will help you with that. Yeah, I keep reading about the people dying, um, but that's not me. It really sounds like you don't trust me. But I'll, I'll do it, and I guess I'll see you in a couple weeks. Now, let's see what happens during that second visit. Ms. James, it's great to see you again. So as you predicted, I was not able to reach Dr. Robertson, but thank you for bringing in your records. That was really helpful. I did review them, and I didn't see a whole lot in the way of how you were doing on your medications, but it was helpful for me to see that you were taking them in the way that you were supposed to. Your urine results from your last visit here were also very helpful for me, so thank you for that. Well, that's good to hear, and... Yeah, I guess he really did move away. Gosh, he was such a good doctor. I'm glad you had such a good relationship with him. That's really important. Let's talk about how you're doing right now. How's your pain? Well, the pain meds really are working. The My pain is pretty much a six most of the time, except right before it's time to take the next pill, and then it spikes up to a nine. But I've been taking them just the way you told me to, and they haven't made me tired or anything. Dr. Alford, back to you. How would you move forward in this situation? Would you change Kathy's prescription? So I like to think about opioids in two buckets. One is the immediate-release short-acting opioids, and on the other bucket is the extended-release long-acting opioids. And I put them side by side because it's important for people to recognize that they're the exact same molecule. It's oxycodone either way or it's uh, morphine either way. The reason why some are long-acting is because of the formulation, because of the way they're packaged. And so it's going to be very important for our patients to know that they shouldn't disrupt that formulation, like breaking the tablet, because they'll make a long-acting preparation into a short-acting preparation. So that's really an important principle, short-acting versus long-acting. Okay, so between immediate release and extended release, is one better or safer than the other? That's an important decision point, and there are some uncertainties. Um, There's insufficient evidence to determine whether long-acting opioids are more effective or safer than short-acting opioids. In fact, there's debate about whether bolus dosing of short-acting opioids versus continuous exposure of long-acting opioids is more likely to result in things like analgesic tolerance, hyperalgesia, or worsening pain, or addiction. So right now, I want to welcome back Dr. Jessica Taylor. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and is also a general internist practicing primary care and addiction medicine at Boston Medical Center. Welcome back, Dr. Taylor. Thank you. So with all the uncertainty, how do you decide between short and long acting? It really depends on what is going on with the patient in front of me. Generally speaking, if someone is opioid naive, meaning they're not on opioid pain medication, they don't have any tolerance, we want to start with a short-acting medication. And that's consistent with CDC guidelines. Reason for that is that the longer-acting preparations all come in larger doses, and so it could be dangerous to start someone on a higher dose that is opioid-naive. The characteristics of the patient's pain are also very important. So if someone has occasional pain, intermittent pain, short-acting opioids are a very good choice. 
On the other hand, if someone has chronic 24-hour consistent pain, they might be a better candidate for a long-acting opioid after they've been transitioned on with a short-acting preparation. And then as Dr. Alfred mentioned a moment ago, it's really important to counsel the patients on how to stay safe with the long-acting preparation. By that, I mean that the long-acting opioids should not be crushed, broken, or chewed. That would risk getting a half a day's dose or a whole day's dose all at once and would be very dangerous in terms of overdose risk. Start low and go slow. Always a good way to approach opioid pain titration. And, you know, I, I think just to summarize, it's important to individualize treatment to the patient in front of you and choose the option that best meets their needs. So at this point, I'd actually like to focus on a few formulations that we really haven't focused on that I think are important. The first one are the transdermal preparations, and we're talking about fentanyl and buprenorphine. And these are really convenient. Fentanyl is dosed every 72 hours, buprenorphine every seven days. But it's important to remember that the peak onset is delayed. It's slowed. It can take up to a day and sometimes up to three days. And also, if you overshoot, there's a delayed offset. Uh, so you need to be careful there. Also, the sustained properties of these patches require a predictable blood flow and adequate subcutaneous fat, and that absorption will be increased if the person has a fever or if they have broken skin, and it might actually be decreased if they have edema or anasarca. Also, some of these uh, patches have a metal foil backing, which is not compatible with an MRI scan, so we should be aware of that. We should also say a word about methadone. So the problem with methadone is that this might be our most dangerous opioid. The reason I say that is that it is a very long-acting opioid, so it has a long half-life, which actually can be variable patient to patient. The other challenge with methadone is that the pain control effect, the analgesic effect, only lasts about six to eight hours, but the half-life might be anywhere from 20 to 120 hours, so it's really on board for a very long time. We also worry about the potential for cardiac rhythm problems with methadone, so QTC prolongation, and the risk of torsades. It does have a few advantages, which is why we're bringing it up today. So for one, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. What this means is that there might be less analgesic tolerance and potentially better efficacy in, in nerve pain, neuropathic pain. The other benefits to methadone include that it does not have active metabolites and so can be used in certain clinical circumstances where other opioids are more challenging. It's also really cheap. And so it is inexpensive. It comes in small dosage units, which allow you to titrate in a very precise way. And while we're still speaking about medications, can you talk about tramadol? So I think this is an important class of medications to talk about. They're considered dual-mechanism opioids, and they include tramadol as well as tepentanol. And not only do they act at the mu opioid receptor, but they also have some norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibition. So remember that descending inhibitory pathway, so they seem to activate that as well. There's a seizure risk with these medications. People do develop physical dependence, so if you're going to stop it, you need to taper them. And there's an addiction potential, no question about it. So they are controlled substances now, and they need to be prescribed with caution, just like any other opioid. Okay, so earlier Dr. Taylor was telling us about the importance of speaking with your patients about the correct way to take medication. I want to talk about abuse deterrent formulations. Are they risk-free? There are a number of abuse deterrent, abuse-resistant formulations, and there are different strategies that the pharmaceutical industry has created to do this. And so one is creating physical barriers. So it makes it almost impossible to crush the medication, or if you do crush it, it turns into a gel, so you can't sniff it or inject it. And then there are other strategies as well, including putting in antagonists or putting in some chemical that's aversive if you take it the wrong way. I will say that post-marketing studies have shown that there's a decrease in diversion related to these compounds or these formulations and that the street price goes down. It doesn't prevent people from taking too many. 
So certainly that's still a risk that someone could take a lot of pills all at once. They tend to be expensive and not always available because insurance companies don't always cover them. And I'll say that there is no 100% abuse-resistant formulation, and, and likely there never will be, because if the body needs to figure out a way to extract the opioid so that it will work, I'm sure there's some chemist out there who can figure it out as well. So let's move on to age. Does, does the age of your patient ever enter into your decision-making? Yeah, so there are definitely age considerations. So for pediatric patients, we're really limited to only two extended-release opioids that have been approved based on safety studies, and that includes the extended-release long-acting oxycodone and the transdermal fentanyl patch. In the elderly, yeah, we worry about drug-drug interactions since they're on so many medications. We worry about a decline in therapeutic index as we get older with any medication, We worry about fall risk. We worry about worsening dementia if someone has cognitive decline. And we worry about interactions with diseases like congestive heart failure and liver and chronic kidney disease. Okay, Dr. Taylor, let's stay with that. How do you take liver and kidney disease into account? These are two conditions that call for some additional consideration when we're thinking about pain control. In the case of liver disease, we know that the liver does metabolize opioids and that opioid clearance goes down in patients that have liver insufficiency or liver failure. We also know that this is true to a different degree depending on the opioid. So for example, morphine, oxycodone, and hydromorphone are all opioids where I would want to be cautious to reduce the dose and potentially space out the dosing interval to avoid overshooting on the opioid dose. Tramadol is an opioid that we spoke about a few minutes ago that might be safe, but the data and experience are a little bit more limited. And I think the challenge in liver disease is that some of the non-opioids that we often reach for also need to be to be used with a bit of caution. So acetaminophen, for example, should be limited to two grams a day in people who have chronic liver disease. Um, and NSAIDs also need to be used with a bit more caution in folks with advanced liver disease. For example, people who have had variceal bleeding in the past, people that might have ascites or fluid buildup related to their liver disease. And then we can use some of our other adjuvant medications that we've mentioned, so gabapentin, pregabalin, and nortriptyline. Those we would also want to use at lower doses and with a lot of caution. Okay, what about renal disease? This is another circumstance where we want to be really thoughtful about our use of opioids and non-opioid medications. In any patient with a a low GFR, opioids should only be used with caution. And there are preferred opioids for patients that have renal failure. These tend to be hydromorphone, fentanyl, buprenorphine, and methadone. We do need to be cautious with specific opioids. So oxycodone, for example, has accumulation of active metabolites in patients with renal failure. And then morphine and codeine are actually not recommended because the active metabolites that stick around in folks with renal failure can cause significant toxicity. Tramadol can be used at a lower dose. And then in terms of our non-opioids, we're a little bit more limited because NSAIDs really shouldn't be used in patients with chronic kidney disease. And then some of our adjuvant medications also call for a little more caution. So tricyclic antidepressants, for example, could potentially be used at lower doses. In this population, what we do often use are acetaminophen, gabapentin, and pregabalin. Dr. Jessica Taylor, thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Alford, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode three. In this episode, we covered a lot about opioids and the risks associated with them. In episode four, we'll look at opioid choice, dosing, and monitoring. 
Scope of Pain was developed in collaboration with our national partners, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies and the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS program companies. Production by Rococo Punch. To follow up on any of the material you heard today, please visit our website, scopeofpain.org, for visuals and other relevant materials. To receive credit, you'll need to listen to all six episodes, and then go to www.scopeofpain.org to complete a post-test and evaluation. I'm Jessica Alpert. Thanks for listening.